0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Nineteen-year-old chef Flynn McGarry's new Manhattan restaurant is called Gem, which is Meg spelled backwards. Meg is Flynn's mom. The tribute is well-deserved. Many mothers sacrifice for their son's success— Writer and filmmaker Meg McGarry sacrificed more than most. Nine years ago, she let 12-year-old Flynn leave school. She homeschooled him and helped him convert her California home into a pop-up restaurant. She filled his bedroom with everything he demanded, Japanese grills, a sous vide, and knives for every occasion. Flynn's obsession started at 10 after his parents had divorced. Things were lonely and weird at home, Meg says. That's when Flynn started cooking for her. Before long, she was doing dishes after Flynn's restaurant nights in their home in the valley. He was profiled in The New York Times, The New Yorker, and throughout it all, filmmaker Meg captured the highs and lows on home video. That's one reason director Cameron Yates thought he could turn Flynn's story into his new documentary, Chef Flynn. It's the story of a complicated relationship between a mother and her son who just happens to be a culinary prodigy.
1: He would practice his chopping, and so it's like, yeah, he was practicing his chopping because he was interested in it, but also, you know, he was
2: a little kid who didn't really understand why his dad wasn't around. I'm using non-alcoholic white wine.
1: How come, because you're both?
0: Flynn McGarry and director Cameron Yates join me for a live event at Guild Hall in East Hampton, New York, as part of the Hamptons International Film Festival's Summer Doc Series. We're very, very grateful this evening that we have both the director of the film and the subject of the film. Obviously, a part of this whole thing, a big part of it, is your age. It's an interesting moment when you're in the kitchen with some guys. I would imagine a lot of people your age would be like, you know, somebody says, "I'm Joe," yeah. And instead you say, I believe we've met.
2: <laughs>
0: Do you feel that you've been aware of things on a level that's beyond your years most of your life?
2: Well, I think an interesting thing is I spent most of, from when I was 12 on not surrounded by people my own age by going to school, but I was surrounded by people in their late 20s and 30s. And so I think the thing that I gained from that was learning, I mean... If you think about it, like if I was in middle school, I would just be surrounded by a bunch of dumb 13-year-olds. And we'd all just be dumb together until eventually we all learned all the same stuff. And That's then, a rather cold... I mean, it was like I, I was the dumb 13-year-old, but I was surrounded by a bunch of people who had all this life experience, and those were my peers.
0: You just weren't interested in the things that they were interested in.
2: Yeah, and, but, but what I mean is like I, I think spending that time only with people who are fully formed adults and are fully matured people is going to obviously make you like speed that process up a lot more because I couldn't be a 13-year-old around all these people. I wouldn't be able to keep up.
0: Right, but, 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 but a lot of 13-year-olds, arguably, you'd put a, a young kid, or whatever word you want to use, a child in a room full of adults, and he might shut down and be staring. He wouldn't respond the way you did. Like, Do you think that you're just different? You're, it, the big part of it was your personality. You really are much more adult-identified, and you want to be... I mean around yeah. adults you would just you you enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I I I mean there was a point where I very actively knew that I was different and I didn't want to be around a bunch of people my own age because I had nothing in common with them I had none of the same interests really and it was a thing where then I found this group of people that were had the same interests and I felt more comfortable talking with a group of 30-year-olds than talking with a group
1: of people my own age.
0: How did you begin this process? Did you read about him in the paper or you heard about him? And how, yeah. did, how just, did you make this connection?
1: My father actually handed me the New Yorker piece, the, the prodigy talk of the town. And uh, I was immediately fascinated. And I contacted him out of the blue and met up with Flynn, his mother, Meg, and his sister, Paris, as well. And um, I, their dynamic was incredible. I, I was like, I have to make a film about you. Um, please let me, and they said no. (laughs) Did you know what you were signing on to? I mean, what was
0: that like for you? Was there a point where you really got sick of being followed and filmed and the subject of the film?
2: Well, I I mean, the interesting thing when Cameron came along was, so. I mean, it was a time where I was very hesitant to let anyone film anything. Um, We got to know each other before we even started filming. Um, But it was also an interesting thing of growing up with two parents who always had a camera, that, right. You were used to being filmed. Well, the interesting thing was I was sick of being filmed by my parents.
0: Your mom is like Ken Burns, sort of, exactly. <laughs> She's yeah. following you around with a camera she all was, goddamn day. She was day. making a
2: really long documentary. I was a really Look at cute that kid. Smile. Yeah, it was the thing where it was like the the fact of someone else coming along, who I trusted but was not my. I mean, I was thirteen years old. I clearly did not want my mom filming, and so it was actually sort of refreshing to have someone else filming. Uh, with a very new perspective and, like, <laughs> right. not... I mean, because I was so used to cameras that the cameras weren't the thing. It was more about who was filming it than the physical thing that was there.
0: Now, answer one question for me. This is an odd question. Those sketches that you made on that little yellow legal pad, where it almost looked like a New Yorker cartoon, you know, because everything pretty much, to me, looked pretty much the same. Yeah. It was like a blob of little squiggly lines, yeah. and you were like, Broccoli. It, every different squiggle, you knew what it was.
2: Yeah, I, I stopped doing that after a certain point where I realized I wasn't the most visually talented artist when drawing things. I thought we
0: need to get, like, Alan Turing in here, like, break <laughs> the code or something, you know? Like, it was, I what's mean, going on there?
2: I think that came from, honestly, at that time, I was researching a bunch of chefs, and I saw a lot of chefs were, like, drawing dishes. And I was like, oh, that's a good way to, like, see how to plate something. And then very quickly realized that that was not how I worked. And... I would draw it out on a plate and be a bunch of blobs, and then I'd be like, those blobs
0: don't look right. There was a period in my life when my mother, who had six children and no money, she'd take a nap at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon for like an hour, and I'd come home and like the chicken was like burning in the oven. So I learned how to cook a little bit out of necessity, and, and your mother kind of intimated that as well, that she was you know, post-divorce, unhappy, uh, preoccupied, a lot of takeout, and you stepped in to fill some kind of a vacuum. Was that... The, the biggest part of it? Or was there also, prior to that, did you always have a fascination with food preparation? I think that
2: was definitely the impetus to it. I mean, I, I see that my mom doesn't want to do this. I'm going to try it out. I didn't want takeout every single night. And then I just immediately had a super kind of intense connection to it. And there, there wasn't like a day that I was like, I'm going to make this. And then I knew I wanted to do it. It was very kind of... I wasn't really thinking about it when it was happening. We would always watch the Food Network because my parents didn't want to watch kids shows and we couldn't watch like adult shows. So the the happy medium, which I feel like is the thing with most families, <laughs> is food television. That's funny. So
0: it That's was funny. always sort
2: of around. That's really and funny. Bugs
0: Bunny, American Horror Story, exactly. and it was Food like Channel in found, between.
2: And so that was, I guess, the only sort of exposure I had to it because um, I was... Years so there, wasn't
0: old. that some like 2001 a Space Odyssey moment where you are like the gorilla with the bone yeah no moment like that early it, Homo sapiens with yeah, the bone was, in your hand
2: it was very just kind of like I never thought too much about it and I just sort of wanted to try it out and I mean that's sort of the
0: way that I've done most things what but. was food to you prior to you making you know very elegant kind of high-end dishes like what did you like to eat I mean I, I was never a picky eater, um, as much as I've
2: always kind of talked down mom's food, she would always go to a nice market and get like healthy things. And I was like focused on like playing soccer and I yeah. didn't ever really think about it as but were you
0: an ordinary, were you an I ordinary was an ord- American kid? As it was any fast food in your life, as a kid could be chicken fingers, all exactly. that kind of crap. I yeah, did normal. not care.
2: And then I think, I mean, it was sort of, I needed that thing of my mom pulling back but my sister didn't care my right. sister was fine continuing to eat the same food i reached a point where i was like i want something different and that was i think that's where it comes into not just the thing from food inherently i just was the kind of person that wanted to see where it could go i mean we would have a roast chicken once a week and i was like there's something else we could do with this i'm sure
0: well like, if you ate my mother's roast chicken you're damn right there's something yeah. else we <laughs> can do with it we take it out of the flame first of all, and <laughs> scrape the burn See, part yeah, off. I, I start will say, with that.
2: my mom has never caught a chicken on fire. It was the 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 funniest thing is like the way that <laughs> my entire family has always been with food is I always describe them as they're scared cooks. I remember the fear my entire family would have when opening the bag of chicken because no one wanted to touch a raw chicken, and then one day. Whatever, my mom was kind of preoccupied and it was like, okay, you take care of it. And I was 10, I could not care less. I was like inside the chicken, like, yeah, holding you're it, like a examining surgeon. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't care if
0: you saw somebody's skull open, you're yeah, like, you 100%. don't care. I, en-
2: I enjoyed the sort of part to that. I had always seen this sort of hesitation to adding more salt to doing anything like that was like fully kind of like cooking passionately. I mean, neither of my parents are like chefs, so it was cooking to feed your kids and to make sure that everything was fine but there was no like effort
0: well one more question that, that came to me wine is a big part of cuisine and what was it like for you being a minor what's it been like for you uh, all that time where that was kind of cut out of your cuisine are you making up for lost time now Flemmy? you're <laughs> drinking your ass off down there and the lower east side I mean, it, it was what are you def- doing now
2: well so when we were doing it at the house it was you just It was illegal enough to be serving people food that we were like, you guys can bring your own wine. We're not going to do that. So they brought their own wine. So people brought their own wine. Um, I was thankful enough to be surrounded by people who were really talented in the wine world. And like any time I was doing pop-ups, I had this one friend, Max, going. he was the one who helped in the New York thing. Uh, And he would do all of the wine pairings for all these dinners of mine. And I think that actually helped me from a very young age understand needing people with other skills because when you're a very ambitious kid who's just like i want to do all these things so the fact
0: that you couldn't serve wine or because or, or, they go hand in hand you think it made you a better cook
2: i think it made me be able to rely on people and and understand that like there's maybe one in a hundred restaurants where the chef actually chooses your wine you have a wine director you have someone who spends their life dedicated to that the way you spend your life dedicated to food um, and so I think I, I learned that very early on. And then, I mean, after I finished school, I, I moved to, to Europe to go work in restaurants. And that was when I actually learned a little bit more about wine and learned kind of how it pairs the food. But I had already been surrounded by these people who were talking about wine, who were sending me wine lists, who were sending me pairings with these dishes that I had already had this huge frame of reference of I knew where the grapes were from. I knew all the regions. I knew what paired with what, not from mm. actually drinking it, but mm. from having people who study but from studying it essentially it was like reading yeah. a book on wine forever but not actually being able to t- do you taste like it.
0: wine yeah you do what, what kind of wine you drink i mean he's 19 <laughs> still but t- yeah. <laughs> oh <laughs> please come on I've when, I'm, when I'm not 13. in the united
2: states of america
0: uh <laughs> just, we'll, we'll talk about that privately yeah. <laughs> now when you make a film and obviously you go into a uh, cutting room. You spend how much time with him? This was this was shot over the course of what period
1: of time? Six six years. No. So, yeah, absolutely. My my mentor is Albert Mazels and Grey Gardens is one of my favorite films of right. all time. So uh, not only untraditional family dynamics are I'm attracted to, but I'm there for the long term, like a longitudinal documentary. Six so, years. Yes. From, yeah. You're in and out, in and out over six e- exactly, years. Exactly, exactly. And editing was going on. And, and you go into time. the
0: editing room with how many hours of footage did you have to cut this mm-hmm. down from?
1: I mean, I would say anywhere, probably like 200 hours of footage, but that includes all of his mother's footage, which to me was a huge attraction to the project as well, knowing that there was this treasure trove of archival footage that she'd shot, you know, for however many, countless years as well. So,
0: is it safe to say you couldn't have done this without your mom?
2: Confidently. I mean, I don't think you really understand how much sacrifice goes into what I was doing when you're in it because, I mean, if I had any normal child or normal parents who were, worked normal jobs and did not understand the sort of creative drive and this sort of unrelenting feeling, and if there wasn't any tra- like kind of tragic thing that happened, I think none of this would have happened because great things kind of happened when my family was pushed and there was like pressure and there was all these things. And I think my mom totally could have said no a thousand times. We probably would have been way better off financially. But she understood that in the long term, supporting her child for what I wanted to do, regardless of if it even would have worked out, like the amount of times that like before that I had, I, th- like I wanted to be a rock star for a minute. And I like, she bought me a guitar. And then like two weeks later, I was like, I'm done with this and then, like...
0: Buy me a colander.
2: Ex- well, no, that was the funny. It's, like, <laughs> I sold the guitars. I sold all my, like, soccer th- to do this, and I think especially the point at which she saw that this was a real thing that I was into, then it was became sort of more than that. And, I mean, even for, like, it was, a, I think, in the time, you don't realize it, but it was definitely, like, I don't think many teenagers spend that much time with their mother. Everything was so crazy, and it was nice to have someone there who... Is your family and kind of is like grounding for that. But then it was also great of like, then when I at 15 wanted to move out and go work on my own, it was like she was kind of like, okay, I've like spent enough time with you in these couple of years that I'm like, okay, kind of letting go more so now. So it was like, it was a very intense thing. And then kind of now our relationship's completely different than that. And I mean, yes, to simply answer it, I could not have done any of this without her. But I think it's also been a very interesting relationship between the two of us as far as a lot of things that were so untraditional and so frowned upon, like don't work with your family in certain things, like I think
0: are the only reasons that I've gotten to this point today. But I wonder if in the future you had a 13 or 14-year-old son or daughter, and they told you that they wanted to bypass a lot of the traditional pathways that young people walk on in this country and skip school and what have and They wanted to go and you know pick some high-stakes game. They want to go uh, sit at a desk at Goldman Sachs and trade. And they're 13 years old. They're just a prodigy. They're just this kind of crazy uh, numbers person. And uh, what would you tell them? What would they be missing? Well, I think, I think now,
2: I think the way that our culture is sort of moving is that I'm sure there are significantly more 13-year-olds who are asking that to their parents because you have so many ways you can get knowledge that it gives this sort of false sense of knowing everything. And if I had this kid that was like, I want to go do this, I think it would truly come from the reasons that they would want to go do it. Because the reasons that I wanted to leave school and the reasons that I wanted to go cook were literally for no, it was never about like, I want to be a chef. It was never about I want to be successful. It was, I want to try to master this craft and the only way that I can do this is to go work in restaurants full time. And it wasn't a thing of like, I want to drop out of school to be a celebrity chef to be treated different than anyone else. It was, I want to stop going to school full time to be treated like the lowest level of a cook. This is all I want to do. Then yeah, a hundred percent. But if for any other reason, like I think that's where the motives are really interesting now is like, yeah, no one wants to go to school. No one's ever wanted to go to school. There's a very specific kind of person who loves going to school. Many creative people do not want to go to school because you think, oh, if I have my interest in art, in music, whatever, you have this false sense or whatever sense that you know something that everyone else doesn't know, and it's sort of that's where the the motives of why you want to learn more are always really interesting. Of like, I for some reason probably thought I had some false sense of I know this that no one else knows, but at that point at which I wanted to stop having a traditional way of growing up, all I wanted to do was learn. And I think that's where my parents saw that the way that I could learn the most was not from a traditional way of going to school, but from actually learning from a craft. Um, As far as things that are being missed out on, I mean, I've had lots of people be like, slow down, like, enjoy your childhood, do all of these things. The amount of pushback that comes from doing something that is extremely different than what you're the normal path is comes from so much hesitation from every single person you talk to, whether it's your family, whether it's an interviewer, whether it's anything. That from the point that I was 13 years old, I've been getting asked at least once a week, "Do you think you're missing out on anything?"
0: No. I may notice I was going the other way. but would no, you no, tell no, your and, kid? And I, yeah. And I'm not saying when, that. When you're standing there and you say, "We talked backstage," and you say, "You're 15 years old," and you say, "I think I'm going to have a brain aneurysm." Yeah. You know what I mean? We're, we're kind of looking mean, at you I'd... going, "You're under a lot of pressure."
2: I need hands. Come on! Is it okay? If, I, I need to like, go calm down somewhere before I, be. m- up. before I have a brain aneurysm. This is the worst experience I've ever had in my entire life. Sorry for you. Fucking hell.
0: I'm talking to chef Flynn McGarry and the director of the documentary about him, Cameron Yates. Sometimes at this point in Here's the Thing, I suggest another similar episode you may want to dig into. This may sound far-fetched, but Flynn McGarry's early certainty about his path in life reminded me of magician Penn Gillette's early certainty about God. When I got to junior high, I read the Bible and then came in with some questions. (laughs) And uh, I don't like the idea of there being a love greater than the love I have for my family and friends. And I do believe that humans are good on their own without this, and I don't think anything happens after we die. Penn informed his parents, left youth group, and he's been one of the country's most prominent atheists for more than 30 years. Enjoy the rest of that interview about God and magic at heresthething.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Flynn McGarry is demanding both in and out of the kitchen. He has strong opinions about what diners should be looking for as well. I definitely feel like a thing to separate is
2: restaurants you go to every day and restaurants that you're going to for an experience. And, like, I don't eat at tasting many restaurants when I'm not working. I go to the same four places. I don't have any time. I want to eat something that I know is going to be good, and then I want to go home. If I do go to something that, like, I ate at Noma the other day. I was in Copenhagen. And you need to go into it understanding that you're not going to dinner. Separate that. You're going to, think of it like you're going to see a play. Think of it like you're going to see a movie. You're going to see a very specific person's like expression of their of their art form. And like, I, I, I will say, like, I mean, sure. Every day we have people who want everything, they're being served, it's a service industry. I totally understand that. There's a certain level of like, you need to give people what they want. But on the other hand, I think not, giving restaurants in that caliber especially when they're really small and really trying to do something different not treating them like it's a really personal thing where yeah one night might be a little off and one night they might not serve exactly what you want but to be able to separate that from they're not doing that to serve you they're doing that to showcase a very specific idea in a very specific art form i think it'd make people complain a lot less like enjoy things a lot more. If you went into something just being like, I'm going to go to this place to see what this person has created, what environment they've created, what uh, atmosphere they've created, what space they've created, what food they've created, what every single detail that they've put out countless hours into creating and enjoy it because, I mean, hopefully it tastes good and like enjoy it for that, but also to be able to enjoy it as a just
0: a, Theater. Yeah, it's theater. Do you, do, you, do you play music in your restaurant? Yeah. Gem, What's the volume of the music? I, I want to say this because I am from that world of people where, if the my wife will tell you, nothing makes me go insane more than if they have, you know, the Who playing at full, yeah. you know, some crazy well, band mean, that I love, by the way, but, but that loud music in the, the, in the restaurant. One of my favorite restaurants is you're going to laugh. And literally, it's only about sound. The food's okay. The food is what you expect. But I literally crave... Going to Pan Quotidien because they play very quiet music. <laughs> All right. And you can sit there and think and read The New Yorker and have a cup of coffee and do your email. In the back, you just hear. Ba, 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 da, ba. Well, yeah,
2: but the, the thing is, like, that is a very specific thing. I, after a long time, realized if we played really quiet music, 80% of the people in the restaurant would have a terrible time. I play the music that I want to listen to, and it sort of just changes depending and on. You impose that on your diners. Yeah, because they're eating the food I want to eat. They're I, sitting. In and the you're chair making the I call, but like. the music, yeah. Yeah. You make the call. And you play it loud. We don't play it loud. Okay. We play it loud enough that you you don't necessarily like hear all the lyrics. You don't hear anything. But music to me, it sets the pace of the room. Okay. When you walk into a place and it's playing, if you walked in and we were just playing like classical music. You'd be like... There's... Easy now. Easy well, now. Well, no, I, I just feel like, like if you walk into Per Se and they're playing yeah. classical music, you know exactly what that restaurant's going to be. If you walk in and you hear a really weird, like... David Bowie song. <laughs> deep cut song from the eight, like it, it gives you an instant sense of like, this is going to be something different. And it is a marker for also like, I now know within someone's meal when there's going to be lulls in conversation because people are eating a bigger course. And you know that they're gonna all be eating, so no one's gonna be talking at that time. And there's nothing worse than a dead silent restaurant when everyone's talk when everyone's eating at the exact same time. So chewing. You're chewing. Music to, you would play music to chew by. So we literally we time the music so when there's a course that everyone's chewing, you're listening. You're hearing I love that. The music, I never thought of that. That's great. And when there's when it's the beginning, you put things that are a lot more not abrasive, but a lot more kind of like <laughs> songs that are gonna make you a little bit more like oh they're going to set the mood for the night. They're going to be able to like take you out of your element a little bit because people come to restaurants like, like ours and restaurants like this, but such like pent up, like they're scared. People come in, they're scared to talk to me. They're scared to like do anything. So when you're playing things that are fun and things that are enjoyable yeah. and you're treating it with a very kind of... When I
0: got you on the phone, finally, I was scared. I was scared yeah. to death. <laughs> I mean, I had, I'm to, like, I had to stalk to you. I stalked to. you for like three months. I mean, yeah. And <clears throat> and I, I it, might be your favorite customer, though, because I, I talk while I'm chewing, so it's it's yeah, great. It's, <laughs> a, we, we don't what need, you need
2: say. If you came, we would not need. No. we'd probably turn the music down. It'd
0: be too loud. <laughs> yeah, I'm a different customer. I'm I'm, I'm going to keep on talking. Now, how did he change? This is an obvious question. What did you witness among the things you saw? How did he, other than just him maturing age-wise, how did he change in the six years?
1: Well, one thing. Does everyone know that he has a restaurant?
0: He has a restaurant in the city.
1: That's gem, the update from the, the low film. The Side yeah. gem. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that. I mean. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why you're clapping because you can't get a seat there. <laughs> Forget it.
1: Or it's you have booked to hear him until 2000.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna go. <laughs> I mean, the guy in the
1: back. I mean, I have to say that was the when I first met him at 12, 13. He was like, I'm, I want to open a restaurant in New York, and and uh, I think by the time I'm 18, 19, and sure enough. You know after five years of filming, you know he opened up his first restaurant this fall i mean this this past march um and yeah i mean for me yeah i mean he's he's grown up i mean i've I've seen him grown up and and I feel like you know uh, you know brothers in a way like we we become very good friends and and the same thing with meg Flynn's mom as well um but uh it's been an incredible experience to to witness it, and I feel like this is just sort of the first stage of. His life and who's announced. the
0: person in the piece that you quote you're reading from who calls you Doogie Hauser? Who wrote that? I have no clue. Oh,
1: yeah, it's, it's a, a critic, a, a, film, a well, film. I want to
0: know what critic
1: Emily that Tishker? became a thing for What it. an asshole! They call you Doogie <laughs> Hauser.
0: I hated that. Um, before we <laughs> no, I thought that was so rude. That one always got followed up with people being like, Do you even know who Doogie Hauser is? <laughs> yeah, and you should be like, No, I don't. Before we go to the questions. I wanted to just describe, you know, I was once asked by Maureen Dowd, she said, do you want to come with me to a sitting with Frank Bruni, Uh, when Frank was the restaurant critic for the Times, when Frank is reviewing a restaurant. And she explained to me the protocols. You go with Frank, Frank has to go to the restaurant and eat everything on the menu. If the restaurant serves lunch and dinner, he has to eat both lunch and dinner there. He goes, uh, uh, sometimes four uh, uh, sittings. He brings a quartet of people. Everyone has to eat what Frank tells you to eat so that Frank can sample everything. You're there to kind of enjoy Bruni's experience. When he walks in the door, he focuses on the service first because eventually they catch on to the fact that it's him and the whole uh, tone of the whole thing changes. Um, I mean, it was a fascinating experience to watch Frank uh, uh, do his thing. We went to Del Posto uh, when it was first opening up. Does the Times still have as much power in the restaurant world as they, as they used to have? And what's it like for you when Wells came to review the restaurant? Is that something that uh, you, you're deeply concerned about or you just sit there and go, I got a job to do, I'm going to do the best I can? And you got a good review. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a good you review. got a very good review.
2: Yes, it was a good review. Um, it was a very interesting situation. I, 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 it was a weird thing where he gave us a lot of time he had reviewed friends of mine's restaurants that had opened months after ours, before ours. And so it was a weird thing where I was like, okay, he's actually like giving us time to like figure it out. And, I, and to answer it simply, New York Times still has, the day that review came out, we got a significant amount of reservations. It still has extreme power in the restaurant industry. I've had random people I've never even met come up to me john george came up to me in the farmer's market and was like it's the best review i've ever read in a while like it i still think everyone reads it especially in new york and it has that kind of power to legitimize a restaurant and i think that was the thing that i necessarily didn't think about when he was coming mostly what i was thinking about when he was coming was how clean the bathroom was and how quickly his things were getting cleared and how everything was going on and obviously once he's there there's nothing you can do you're gonna serve the food that you're gonna serve everyone else and have to have that sort of confidence with it but The thing that I actually personally really liked about the review was he said exactly what we are, which is, yes, you've read about me for seven years, whatever. But this is a new restaurant that has room to grow, that is super ambitious, but hasn't figured it all out yet. And like it gave this sort of feeling to even the entire restaurant community. Like I've had chefs talk to me in a very different way after that came out about like, he gave everyone a reason to root for this restaurant, not because it's like, oh, fuck these guys, because they just immediately opened and were perfect, but because the New York Times saw that you're very aspirational, but it's real. It's not like I'm a little wonder kid that was surrounded by all the money, had the most expensive everything to do everything perfectly. He saw that we wanted to go a very different route from that and go a very small kind of, kind of reset the clock on all of this. Why the Lower East Side? I mean, there's a lot of factors to it. I'd known the people who had the space before, so it came in a very natural way. The timing of it was very natural. Um, But also, I mean, I've been living in New York for almost four years now, and I lived in Brooklyn when I first moved there. I lived in the West Village. I never really truly felt a sort of sense of community and, like, neighborhood until I moved to Lower East Side. And I think it sort of epitomizes exactly what we wanted from a restaurant of like, there are some very nice things down there. There's still a little bit of grit to it. It still has like this sort of yearning for old New York that like my, when my mom lived in New York would tell me stories about New York in the eighties and all these things that are the reason when you're a kid and you're hearing all these crazy stories about what the city was like, that you want to move there and then you move there. And it's just like, mm. there's a Dwayne Reed on every corner. And then,
0: it's a, well, not, not a New York. That's been overrun by speculative real estate dealing. Yeah, Maybe but I mean,
2: and I think the Lower East Side is not a, like it's not immune to that whatsoever. Yeah. Our street, as bad as our street places. is very interesting in in the the business. What street there. you want again? Run Forsyth. Forsyth, yeah. And it doesn't feel there's it, like we're the most gentrified thing on our entire street. There's a barbershop. Yeah. You a, fucked up the neighborhood. One would think that, but because we're so small, we haven't had any impact on what everyone else does on the street. And we haven't, we don't try to step on anyone's toes. The barbershop like watches out for us. Like it, it feels so inherently community. like community. Well, it feels like community in the way that like the stories I would hear of old New York, where you'd have a fine dining restaurant, like a bunch of homeless people outside. Like it was this like connection of like every walk of life in one little area. And everyone was respectful to each other and, and, understood like you have your place we have our place we're not gonna mess with each other we're just gonna say hi every morning and like that's the weird thing it's like yeah the the guys on the street they don't know they don't really care what we're serving but it's like we don't mess with them if they're smoking weed out front of a restaurant we don't tell them to leave we're just like you can go do your thing we're gonna do our thing and like we have this sense of community that feels so foreign to new york city
1: now when this film this film is coming out where uh, we're going to be opening the film forum in the night. the theaters. Yes, we're going you're to theaters. You're not streaming.
0: You're on. You're in theaters.
1: Theaters and then we'll old end. school. Hulu as well. Yeah. <laughs> Great.
0: It always helps when your leading man is a good looking guy. I've walked around. Everybody say, "Oh, you got to see this." This guy's like James Dean. I, I told you. I've been blowing you up all over <laughs> New York, man. <laughs> yeah. Big time. Not that you need it. You've already had all kinds of press. But when you're cutting the film, did you find that it was uh, uh, that made it easier that your protagonist is somebody who was kind of look like you could star in a movie I,
1: I sure i mean our editor hannah buck I mean, if he was the elephant boy it might have been a little different <laughs> story you know i mean um our uh, editor hannah buck i have to give all the credit to she was an amazing editor and uh, yes i think we have some mics around here let's take a couple quick ones anybody have any questions
0: yeah. pass the mic down and go.
1: I have a question. Um, so in the film, at one point, your mom says, I, I'm a writer. I feel like I constructed this story. I made this narrative. Because I'm a writer, there is an element of me <laughs> that I feel like I wrote this. And it's really weird. And I don't know why I can't seem to get over that feeling of, like, the guiding of this story, like okay, let's do a supper club and then let's go here and let's do there, that there's some sort of element of like storytelling in it for me. And so it fed some part of me. And we don't see in the film, I think, a a response until how maybe a few years after that happened, how do you respond to your mother feeling like she created the narrative of your life?
2: Um, My mother is a very interesting way with words. uh, And I think that knowing her, I mean, I I think there's something to be said about, like, she... Every step of the way was there, and every step of the way was supporting it, and I think that was sort of what she meant by that, was not that she was forcing it, but that we were very sort of aligned of the classic thing, is like, the kid and the parent are having very different ideas of where the kid should go, and... My mom and I always sort of had the same feeling on things. Like we were doing, like together in a lot of ways of like, I mean, I I don't think my mom like, she didn't want a normal kid. She wanted a kid that was going to do something interesting. So I think it wrote together. It seems like your mom
0: wanted a kid she could film all the time too. So Maybe. Um, Who else?
2: Um, I noticed that not only are your dishes obviously delicious, but visually they are so beautiful. It looks like, a painting, And I know you said that you no longer do any of the drawings, but when you assemble your dishes, it is a work of art. And what inspires that kind of production for you? It's very random. I can't tell you the last time I've thought of a dish from how it should look. It, I mean, I, I think there is evolution in my cooking that went from trying to curate every single element of it, of drawing it and trying to figure out where it was going to go, To the point of saying, like, leaving things natural to an extent, and I think that definitely came from just like being more confident in my cooking that I could make something that was beautiful because it was just done very well, not forced to be beautiful, like it wasn't, it's not plated, it's just, it's like assembled how it feels right. I think that came with a confidence in being able to cook everything very well. There was a time where I was making sure everything was like arranged in very interesting ways. And I realized that if you just cook something really well, it will inherently look beautiful. And maybe it's incredibly simple. And I mean, I'm sure there's a, a much deeper explanation of where the influences come of color compositions and all these kinds of things, but that's the X factor I enjoy of like, I don't know where I'm going when I start plating something. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes I plate it five times to, till I get it to the right place. But I let the things I've made dictate where they go. What's
0: your guilty pleasure? Like you're home, you're freaked out, you're having a shitty day. Is Flynn McGarry eating fried peanut butter and banana sandwiches? What are you doing, <laughs> man? What's your freak out food? We like got an Oreo McFlurry. No. <laughs> Oreo oh, yeah, McFlurry. We're all gonna eat one tomorrow. Trust me. We're all gonna be like, man, Flynn. He knows everything, man. You're gonna do. I'm not kidding. You're gonna do a uh, a guy like him, his age, and you've been following him. It's like uh, 28 up. You're like apted. You're gonna do a
1: sequel on him. Uh, we're doing we're doing like a radio piece actually about the opening of the restaurant because as you see, the, the opening of the restaurant is not in the film, so we're updating that yeah, through audio. Cool. So very cool. We got time for one more. Anybody else? Uh, right down here in the front. Was your mom ever wondered why you hanging out with 20-year-old? Because I grew up in a strict world. I could never do that.
2: I mean, there was a definite point where my mom was like, why are these adult men hanging out with my small child? Uh, <laughs> and then...
1: I would wonder that as a mother. Yeah, no, I, it, was if a, if a, if it was
2: a true concern of hers as a mother. But she met them, and I think, like... It, always a funny thing of like all of my friends were, would always like love my mom because they're like she would like would go up to them and be like well, like actually ask them like why are you hang, why are you getting along with a 13 year old like none of that makes sense and I think it was sort of especially to her when she saw that these people who were chefs and had careers were like no we actually like talking to him, we like hanging out with him. I think that was when she could kind of step back a lot too and knew that like I was in good hands over here
1: um, I'm going to ask specifically about the night where you said you might have had an aneurysm. Did the volatility spill over into the directorial relationship on that evening or other evenings? Were there, was there ever severe animosity between the two of you? I'd absolutely not. I mean, that night, Flint, on that night specifically, the night where everything went wrong, he was not focused on the cameras at all. I mean, in general, when we were filming in the kitchen, the, we blended into the background. And luckily, that kitchen was a larger one, so it was easy to hide. <laughs> Cause it, but to me, it was horrifying to be there as that was happening. The only thing that we ever, you know, he got to know the mic, the, the mute button on the microphone. So occasionally, occasionally, we'd lose his audio and be like, mm, Flynn. Can that you, was my can mistake. You turn, <laughs> can you turn it back on? <laughs> I should have <laughs> muted the button on the <laughs> microphone. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Flynn, for sharing that with me. I really <laughs> yeah, fucked that up that totally. I learned that very early on. Of, I <laughs> mean, hit the mute button on the microphone.
2: Yeah, I would forget that cameras were there and everything, and then was still self-aware enough that, like, in the back of my head always I was like, there is a mute button here, and I, no one needs to know I did this.
0: One last question. So for people who are, they cook, they're home, and they, my wife makes uh, the best catapacho I've ever had in my life. And what's a mistake you see people make in the kitchen? People never add enough salt. They, they never add enough salt. Really? There's
2: a the fear, principle. like deep down, I feel like in everyone when salt was like bad for you. That yeah. pe- the reason, I always tell people, the reason restaurants taste You don't
0: know fear salt because you're fucking 19 years old. That's why you don't know <laughs> fear salt. I mean, you got to hit the right balance of
2: salt. Well, no, I mean, I, okay. I, the reason food tastes better in restaurants, I tell everyone, is because you add significantly more salt. You add more butter to everything, and you add more acidity to everything. See,
0: honey, did you hear what he said, honey? It's coming salt, from an expert here. Salt butter and salt acid. butter and red wine on everything. Yeah, that that is my only true. People secret. are afraid to flavor their food.
2: If you put salt, brown butter, and lemon on any food, it will taste delicious.
0: Wasn't that worth the price of admission? <laughs> Please, let's have a hand for Flynn McGarry
1: thank
0: you. and Cameron Yates. Thank, and you. thank you for coming. Thank you. Flynn McGarry's new restaurant is called Gem, where the tasting menu can be had for $155. Prepaid, please. And that's if you can get a table. Cameron Yates' movie about McGarry is called Chef Flynn, and will be in theaters this November. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing comes from WNYC Studios.